Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Good morning to everybody who's watching online right now. Uh, let's all turn our Bibles to Psalm 92 as we continue in our summer sermon series in the Psalms. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along with us in a Blue Pew Bible. Uh, you can find Psalm 92 on page 498. So many of you know that Bergen County, the county that Ridgewood exists in, is one of the only counties in the United States that still enforce what are called the blue laws. These are the laws that regulate what can be bought and sold on Sundays. So in short, the only stores allowed to operate um, on Sundays in Bergen County are what we would call kind of essential goods. So grocery stores, uh, pharmacies, uh, kind of local markets, but essentially all retail stores in Bergen County are closed today and every Sunday. And if you grew up around here like I did, you know nothing different than that. But if you maybe moved to Bergen County later in life, you inevitably, one Sunday, got in your car, went to the store, just to find out, and there weren't that many cars on the road this morning, but, you know, whatever, I'm out earlier than everybody else, and you get to an empty parking lot, and you find a locked door, and you're, like, wondering, did the rapture happen last night? Like, there's nobody shopping in Bergen County. Like, what is going on? Um, but people uh, probably assume that the history of the blue laws would be religious in nature. Uh, but it turns out that churches and clergy were not the driving force to instate the blue laws. They did not begin until the 1950s, and they came to coincide with the rise of these big shopping centers, especially in the town of Paramus, most notably this little place called the Garden State Plaza, which at the time was the largest mall in New Jersey. And these small local business owners, uh, the kind of mom-and-pop shops, if you will, uh, got fearful because most of them chose to be closed on Sundays. And now they were worried that they would need to be open if they were going to compete with these new huge shopping centers in the county. So they garnered support from people in their communities, including churches and clergy, to make the case that closing all non-essential retail on Sundays would be good for us. It would be good socially for our families and communities. It would limit traffic and congestion in an increasingly populated area. And so came the blue laws. And I find it interesting that now, what, 70 years later, I rarely, if ever, do I hear of anybody wanting to overturn the blue laws. Uh, because while there are times, surely, where it's inconvenient, uh, my experience in talking to people is that most people like them for different reasons. Uh, one being, there's less traffic on Sundays. Um, others who work within the retail space enjoy knowing that their job is always going to have Sundays off. And in general, it turns out that in a very populated area, people kind of like having one day of the week where maybe not everything goes at the same pace as the other six days. And so while churches and pastors were certainly not the driving force, I, I'm sure they were a willing ally. <laughs> because for Christians and for pastors, there's probably something kind of nice about not having the added temptation for their people to go shopping instead of going to church. And it begs the question, 
especially if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what is Sunday to you? What is Sunday's purpose in your life? How does your Sunday impact your Monday through Saturday? Does it? Should it? How do we approach Sunday? This morning, we're going to look at and unpack Psalm 92. Uh, Many of the Psalms, not all of them, but a lot of them have a subtitle right under the title. So if your Bible's open or if you have your app open, look at the subtitle under Psalm 92. It says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Psalm 92 is the only of the 150 psalms in the Bible that specifically says this is for the Sabbath. So before we read it, understanding the Sabbath in the Bible and its role in the church today, I think is very vital in understanding Psalm 92. And so I'm going to give a very kind of quick overview of the Sabbath, probably too quick, but bear with me. Uh, For the people of God in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a day every week where they were called to, commanded to, rest from work and worship God. So it wasn't just rest from work, but it was rest from work and to worship corporately together. Uh, The Sabbath was modeled first by God himself in creating the world, that in Genesis 1 we see in six days of creation that God created, and then we were told on the seventh day God rested. Then in the law of Moses, after God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt, uh, where they were uh, enslaved for 400 years, God now instated the Sabbath through Moses to his people to keep them from forgetting the redemptive work of God. Deuteronomy 5.15, will be on the screen, says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So in the Mosaic Law, and what grew into Jewish Jewish, uh, tradition amongst Israel, was that the Sabbath in the weekly calendar was Saturday, a day of rest, a day of remembrance, a day of corporate worship. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the Mosaic Law, meaning that the uh, 24-hour period from uh, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown was no longer binding on his disciples but the spirit of the Sabbath, a time each week to set aside, to gather for the purpose of remembrance and worship, remained amongst his disciples and into the early church. And the early church took the first day of the week, Sunday, as its day to gather because it was on the first day that Jesus rose from the dead, marking his victory over sin and death in the resurrection. And this was, and still commonly is, called the Lord's Day, the day where we remember what God has done for us in freeing us from the slavery of sin, just like he freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus, as our Savior and Lord, is is the person that we worship, which is why, if you've ever wondered, why do we meet on Sunday? It's because it's the Lord's Day. And I say all that to say this. Because we gather now for rest and remembrance and worship, and we know that Psalm 92 is a song for that day amongst God's people, I think this psalm will help us answer the question, how should we view Sunday? 
Again, how does the Lord's Day inform and shape our Christian lives? And again, how does Sunday, rightly viewed and practiced, impact Monday through Saturday? So that's where we're going. We're going to read Psalm 92 all at once. You can follow along with me. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. Psalm 92 is a psalm of thanksgiving. If you've been here this summer, you know we're taking a psalm from each of the different kind of six categories of psalms and kind of walking through them. And this is our first and only psalm of thanksgiving this summer. Uh, This category is similar to a praise psalm in that they boast about and proclaim in the redemptive work of God. But a thanksgiving psalm takes it to a deeper level in that they become personal in celebrating the redemptive work that he has done in us. And the song begins with, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good. And here's the thing. When it says good, we, in our culture, we need to think Bible good and not culture good, okay? Otherwise, that word does nothing for us, all right? Uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers, I love you, but anytime anybody asks you, how was your day? Oh, it was pretty good. It was good. It was good. And I, I did it all the time, uh, but like, it's just like, what, what do you mean? Oh, it was good. It was good. It was good. What do you mean? It was good. And, and, and it's not just teens. I'm not just ragging on you because our common greeting in this world, probably even in our church life, do you remember way back before COVID, we had a greeting time in church? The the common entry to people you'd see every week was, hey, how have you been? And what do we all say? Pretty good. I'm pretty good. How are you? Oh, I'm pretty good. Awesome. See you next week. Right? Like, I say pretty good even, like, no matter how I'm feeling, and I don't even know why. I just feel like that's what I'm supposed to say to start. And then maybe we'll go a little deeper, but I'm pretty good. So when we read the word good, we need to think Bible good. Like, we just sang the song, you are so good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Church, why do we gather? Why are we here this morning? Because it's good 
It is right. It is, it is fitting, glorifying, honoring to God that we gather each week for the purpose of giving thanks to the Lord. It is good. Give thanks for what, though? What are we grateful for? Psalm 92 will outline kind of two broad categories throughout. Two reasons why believers ought to prioritize the corporate weekly gathering in their lives if they are living in obedience to the Lord. Gratitude for, number one, who God is. And number two, for what God has done. So we'll start with, number one, who God is. The word Lord in verse 1, it's in all caps. We've seen that a few times in the series already. We know that when we see the Lord in all caps in our Bibles, that means that's the Hebrew word for Yahweh, that God reveals himself to, um, to Moses in Exodus 3 to tell the people of God, God in Israel that he is the great I Am. And then he says, we sing praises to your name, O Most High that we praise God for his name's sake, for who he is. There's no one greater. There's no one more powerful. God has never been outsmarted. God has never been outmaneuvered. There's nothing in all creation that surpasses his goodness, his greatness. That's why we sang this morning, all creatures of our God and King, all of creation is under his domain. We declare him for his loving nature, his steadfast love. Pastor Joe preached last week that we can be confident in the Lord, not only because he is able in his mighty power, but he is willing in his steadfast love. If God was able but not willing, it's not good news for us. And if God was willing but he's not able, not good news for us. But we gather because we are grateful that we have a God who is able and a God who is willing. You could say it like this, that we can trust God will never fail us. You know why? Because he never has. And notice it says, we will declare your love in the morning, and we will declare your faithfulness by night. The Sabbath amongst Israel was, was an all-day event. It was not a 75-minute service, and then finally we can get on with our day. It, they oriented their day around the worship of God. And throughout the Sabbath, there was the presence of music. M music, right? Derived from Hebrew poetry. We, we know that the Psalter became kind of a song book for Israel and for the early church. We know much, if not the majority, of the songs we sing are based upon the Psalms. And what we talk about here all the time, right, the reason we sing is because music has this unique ability to express, to draw out emotions in us, not only when we gather, but then that carries us throughout the rest of the week, especially when that music is centered on who God is. I want to share a story from this past week. Um, at our staff meetings uh, over the summer, uh, someone begins the meeting with a devotion. And this past week, uh, Mary, our communications director, gave a devotion out of Ephesians chapter 5, part of which reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. And for everything 
to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, side note, notice the connection even there between singing when we gather and gratitude, that it's our gratitude that fuels our singing in all things. But that led to a discussion amongst the staff where another staff member uh, shared about how how vital God-glorifying good music is in his life, even throughout the week. And he kind of gave this example that happened recently, and he was kind of, you know, uh, a little sheepish about it. He felt like it was maybe kind of silly, but he wanted to share that he was doing yard work. And he was just in the heat, like hacking away at something in his yard, and just kind of like like hard work, kind of feeling just down about how he's got to do this, and he's listening to music as he's doing this, and there's a certain hymn, he did not tell us which one, came on. And there's a certain part of this song that he's in his yard in the middle of the day, weeping, listening to this music, tears of joy in the midst of just this hard work. And then that led to another staff member that said, you know, it's funny you say that, Because he and his wife have a kind of decorative piece in their home with the line of a hymn on it that they see every day. And the line is, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Some of you know that's a lyric from the hymn, Come Thou Fount, a hymn written 370 years ago. And then another staff member jumps in, and she remembers the season when she had a young baby and was struggling with just some kind of, just the postpartum kind of pain. Uh, a, a, a child maybe isn't sleeping great in the middle of the night, holding this baby, hearing Come Thou Found play, crying out to God in the midst of that joy but hard season, clinging to him. Hang with me here. Comes back to the first person doing the yard work who just said, that was the hymn that came on, and that was the line that broke me when I was doing my yard work. And we all just sat there literally on this stage in tables, and just we we're just like, whoa, music. And the role that God has instated and wired us for it to play in declaring who he is. Let thy goodness, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, especially on the Lord's Day, because you know where all three of them first heard and sung that song? On the Lord's Day, in the gathering. So we give thanks to who, for who God is, thanks to him for who he is, and then secondly, we give thanks for what he has done. Uh, back, look at verse 4. Verse four. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. The psalmist speaks of God's work in general, But I think he has in mind a certain gratitude to God for his works of revelation in particular. So you have God's works in general, but then his particular works in revealing himself. And so when the Bible talks about revelation, it distinguishes between uh, what we call general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is to all people from all times. And he does that primarily through his creation, 
Romans 1.20 says that God's eternal power and divine nature is made plain to us. The sky and the stars and the trees and all of the creative order reveals God so that all people, Paul says, are without excuse. No one can say, I didn't know. Because all are without excuse. But the Bible also says that general revelation while true, is not sufficient for salvation. Because look at Romans 1.21 that comes right after. Listen. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or, look, give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We are in need of special revelation which comes primarily through His Holy Spirit and by His Word. The written Word to us is the special revelation. This is why we're so passionate about missions here at Grace Church. As I look out, we have the Parshall family. Remember, Carl turns 100 today. Many of you know, but maybe many of you don't know, that his son, David, and his wife, Susan, are our missions partners to Nepal, hoping to go back next month, right? Hoping that the road gets paved to return. David's son, Ike, also here with us this morning, his wife just gained up their support to go to Hungary for their first missions stint. I see over here Dan and Linda Rudd, who have been missionaries for a long time in the country of Japan, home now on furlough, right? The reason why we partner with missionaries and we send them out is because God says how good it is those who bring the good news, how good it is to see people bring God's word to various cultural contexts and play a part in the special revelation by his Holy Spirit through his word. And when he says, when the psalmist writes, your thoughts are, are very deep. And the fool can't understand, can understand it without help. Think about that and look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 10. verse will be on the screen. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God, look, except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. God, that we might know about him with human wisdom, but we will not know him personally in a way that leads to salvation without spiritual wisdom, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And in that vein, in this psalm of thanksgiving, a joyous psalm of thanksgiving, we're also giving a warning, aren't we? When he writes that the man without the knowledge of God is doomed forever. He, he writes those who don't have that special knowledge, they come and, th and then they go. And while man without God might appear to our eyes to be thriving, appear to be flourishing, their certain future is destruction apart from the saving grace of God. The Bible says all over that um, to, to beware of what your eyes tell you when you observe the world. Because, as the saying goes, things aren't always what they seem. And we're going to dig deeper into that point when we cover Psalm 73 in a couple weeks. 
But here the psalmist says, though the wicked sprout like grass, they are doomed to destruction forever. In the region of Palestine where God's people dwelled, uh, the rainy season is from October to April. And then the climate turns very hot and very dry for the rest of the year. So what happens is, by the end of the rainy season, there will be grass that will temporarily grow, and it grows pretty quickly. But then, right when the rainy season ends, whatever grass was there would immediately dry up and be gone before you even knew it. And this is the imagery we get of those who lack true knowledge of God who don't give thanks to him out of a deep love in their hearts, that even if they appear healthy and they appear strong and they appear like they're thriving, the psalmist says, just give it a little time. They will soon fade. In light of eternity, the short time we have here, however long it might seem in the moment, is like a fading blade of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Verse 9, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, shall perish. Verse 10, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. He puts these things back to back, and here's the climax of Psalm 92. The climax of thanksgiving, the fuel for our worship, is unlocked by this question, who is the enemy of God? Because when you read this, when I first read this, we often think first of, I don't know, maybe enemy armies. Maybe Israel's first thinking about foreign nations that surrounded them. Present day, we superimpose our so-called enemies into this. Yeah, Lord, you will deal with them. Those who maybe we want to see God scatter like the wind, we're kind of looking forward to that. But this psalm will not dance. This psalm will not move in your soul until we first see, before all of that, that you were an enemy of God. That I am the one who shall perish in my own flesh. Because I turned from God. I was dead in sin. I chose my glory over his. I thought this world revolved around me and existed to make me happy. The, the psalmist is sharing his testimony here. He, the psalmist is saying he was that blade of grass. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this, this is your story too. This is my story. The good news of the gospel is that it's all about grace. The good news is that we don't lift ourselves out of the pit. We are lifted out by someone else. We don't save ourselves by our behavior or our, or our parents' works that gets passed down to us or our religious resume and all the things that I did. I was baptized then. I took communion then. And we kind of list out our resume and say, this is why I'm saved. No, we go from being enemies to children because of grace. Can I ask you, even if you've been in church a long time, even if you've known all about grace for a long time, do you truly understand grace? It's that moment 
when you see your sin for what it truly is, a rebellion that leads to destruction, and then simultaneously alongside it, see God's love for you, that despite that rebellion, he sent his son to die for you. Man, when that hits, when, when, when that just kind of stirs up us from the inside, when that hits, it explodes in our soul, and we worship. Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinner, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Look, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The psalmist says that just like the horn of the wild ox, that he has been lifted high. The, the horn, that probably doesn't get you going today. It doesn't really get me going. But in the first century, that got people going because the horn of the ox, man, that was a picture of health. That was a picture of status, a picture of power that's been bestowed to us by God. And so if you have not trusted your life to Jesus Christ... The one thing this morning I need you to know that everyone who comes in here week in and week out to gather for worship, everyone who comes in as a believer in Jesus Christ, they're not coming in here because they've cracked the code themselves. They're not coming in here because they're so morally upright and then we just gather to talk about how upright we are against this world who is so wicked. The reason we're here is in response to the fact that we were lost, we were desperate, we were in need of a Savior, and we worship because it is His love and grace that saved us, and we worship because it is His faithfulness that will keep us to the end. And the response to that grace is repentance of sin. Faith in Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And that is the difference between eternity apart from God as an enemy and eternity with God as a son or a daughter. In Christ, the foolish are converted into the righteous. And, and we get two pictures here. While the foolish will sprout like grass and then they're destroyed, verse 12 gives us the second picture, that the righteous will flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. Lebanon or Lebanon was the region north of Israel. It was a mountainous region that had high precipitation, all throughout the year, and therefore was filled with forests of these huge cedar trees. And therefore, Israel always talked about Lebanon in its writings as this kind of like heaven on earth. And then the palm tree that we know about, even our context, our country, where do you find palm trees? In, in warmer climates. And a palm tree can withstand hot, dry climates because they have deep water-seeking roots. And we know what even this psalmist didn't know, that the righteous will flourish when they have deep roots that are connected to the source of life, the living water, Jesus himself. Psalm 92 is a psalm of thanksgiving for who he is, 
for what he's done. It's a song for the Lord's day. There's no commands in Psalm 92. Psalm 92 doesn't tell you to do anything. All praise and glory is given to God. But I want to leave us quickly with a few implications for application from Psalm 92. I'm going to briefly give them and encourage you to kind of either remember them or write them down and consider to take that a step further in your own mind of how you can bring these to bear in your life. Four implications for application in Psalm 92. Number one, prioritize the weekly gathering on the Lord's day. I asked in the introduction, what is Sunday to you? Some of you maybe grew up in a context where it was very strict. It was church in the morning, church in the evening, no other activities allowed. Others of you maybe grew up and church was this kind of chore you had to get through. Okay, just kind of get through the morning, go to church, and then you're free. You walk out the doors, you break free, and the rest of the day is yours. Others of you maybe never grew up in church at all or with any real consistency. And Sunday was merely a repeat of Saturday. But if you're a believer, the approach towards and desire for the weekly gathering of the church exposes, I think, the state of gratitude towards God in the hearts of his people. And because of the worship that then happens at the gathering, it propels the state of gratitude in the hearts of his people for the rest of the week. Because when believers gather, while our stories of redemption are personal and unique, we are unified in the truth that God redeemed us, that we gather here because God redeemed us. And the spirit of the Lord's day is this weekly day of remembrance from us of what God, again, has saved us from, what he has saved us into, and confidence in the fact that he will be faithful to bring that to completion. And, and so we leave it to you as to how you approach the whole day. We're not going to be legalistic here and say these activities are for the Lord's day and these are not. But a spirit of orienting ourselves around the worship of God on the Lord's day both exposes and propels our hearts for what is true. And again, there's unique individual applications we need to make here. I mean, one, most obviously amongst the staff, Sunday is a work day. But it's also a day of worship and gathering for us. But we got to think about the rest component outside of Sunday too. If you have a job that has working on weekends, you have to think through that as well. But there's a spirit of a commitment of orienting the Lord's day around the worship of God. There's a saying that Sunday church is a Saturday night decision. Have you heard that? Where, where, where you, it's, it shouldn't be a wake up and we'll see how it goes, see how much good sleep I got, that you kind of orient even your weekend around the fact that Sunday's not going to be competed with, even based upon what you do on Saturday night. And let us be careful of allowing lesser priorities overtake our commitment to one another and the Lord on the Lord's day because of what that will do to you over time in your own heart and for parents, what that will do and communicate to your children as well. Number two, second implication, to build up the body of Christ. If our purpose for gathering is to remember him on the Lord's day. One of the functions we have in the midst of being a church and our covenant together is to build one another up in the faith. 
that a heart of gratitude towards Christ, centered on the weekly gathering, will equip you to not only be fed, but to feed. As Ephesians 4 lays out, as we all play a part in attaining the unity of maturity in faith. And so that you and your fellow members that you are covenanted to in this church might not be tossed to and fro by the waves of human cultural doctrine that are always threatening to throw us off course, to focus on lesser things. And we do this through, yes, showing up. We do this through imparting word ministry to one another, even throughout the week, building one another up and speaking truth over one another, but also in the midst of serving one another so that they may be built up, right? That is the culture of service that we are modeling, building in this church, where come the fall, Lord willing, across two services, there'll be about 60 to 70 women every single Sunday who are serving between our two gatherings, and what happens is that when you walk in and you see people are serving you, are sacrificing their time to bless you through service, that should stir something in you that says, I want to do that too. I want to play a part in serving others as well to build up the body of Christ. Number three, bear fruit in good works until God calls you home. I want to point out verse 14 again, that the righteous will flourish like the palm tree. And then he writes, they still bear fruit in old age. This is the fruit of good works that God has prepared us to walk in. Fruit that blesses our neighbor. Fruit that seeks to serve and uplift the marginalized and the oppressed. And we're called to bear that good fruit even until old age, until God calls us home. So in a church that is dominated by families with young children, I want to take a moment to say a word to our older saints in Grace Church, our older brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I know how much we talk about how young this church is, and I don't know but I suspect there might be times where you feel like no one's really expecting anything of you. And it could be where you might feel like my time has been passed over to make an impact. I just want to, as clearly as I can, say that is not the case, nor do I want that to be the case implicitly or explicitly here at Grace Church. Maybe in society, the physical weakness that often overtakes people at older ages, the wear and tear, the kind of slowing down is seen as something to be discarded. But in the church, I want that to be something that's going to be cherished. There is never a time to let up on what God has called you to do in this world. And at some point, he's going to call us all home. But if by God's grace, you have or will grow old in this world, God is not done with you yet, and he will use you if you are willing to pour yourself out for the glory of God and the good of the kingdom. And our gratitude overflowing in worship, worship impacts and forms the Christian life devoted to good works. This is where your Sunday impacts your Monday through Saturday, that your commitment to the gathering is going to form and shape the good works you're going to bear throughout the week until God calls you home. And in this world, we know that we are both realistic and hopeful. 
we're realistic in knowing that we can never achieve perfection in this fallen world, and our world won't ever be perfect either. And yet we can be hopeful in knowing that our good work done to the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit has real significance. And then lastly, number four, the fourth implication, testify to the glory of God. The psalmist just shared his testimony. The good work that addresses physical and social and emotional needs in this world around us, that is valuable, that is needed, that is vital. But our testimonies can prioritize the prayer for and sharing our stories with those who do not yet believe. Church, let your life testify. In deeds, yes, but also in word. Share your story of how God saved you, how you came from becoming an enemy to a child. You all have a story. Let it be known that your Christian life is not defined by you and the things that you choose to do, but it's defined and marked by him and what he has already done. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a walking miracle. Do you know that? Do you walk in that? You were dead. Now you're alive. And it's all because of grace. Testify to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning. And I'm grateful, Lord, for everyone who is here and for the times that we, and I know I even lose sight of, why are we here? I pray that, Lord, this morning would be a glorious reminder of why we're here, of why we prioritize this time. Lord, that by your grace, we can say that your Son is ours forevermore. And that is your gracious love that has saved us. It is your gracious faithfulness that will keep us. That we can flourish like the palm tree in the desert. We can abound in thanksgiving no matter the climate that surrounds us because our roots go deep. And so, Lord, I pray that would be our prayer, even as we prepare now to sing in response, Lord. That our eyes and minds would be fixed upon you and you would truly fuel us for the week you have prepared for us coming up. And it's all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.